Jesus, we just love you. I thank you that last Sunday was Easter and that good things were happening. That you're, you're, the Easter means that good news is on the way. That good movement is coming from your throne. That, that your cross and your resurrection means that life is what we're experiencing. That love is what we are experiencing. I'm so thankful for that. Thank you for loving us so well. And I pray this morning as we begin this new series that you will birth something inside of us, that you will launch something in our hearts that, that, uh, that will go beyond what we've expected, that will have long-lasting implications. I pray that you will move this morning. We say, come Holy Spirit in this place, in our homes, wherever we're, we're at right now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, open up to Acts eleven nineteen through 29. We're going to look at the church of Antioch in Syria. Uh, and Antioch was a huge city. Some estimates are that it was actually the third largest city in the entire Roman Empire. Uh, it was massive, especially by their standards uh, of spacing. In this massive city, in it, a church was being birthed that was doing extraordinary things. It was doing things that were outside of what was expected. So I want to read this together, Acts eleven nineteen through 29. Let's see what it says. Meanwhile, the believers had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death. They traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to the Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began to preach to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. And the power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of the Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. I want to pause there real quick because this is important that we register this, that we recognize this. The believers before Antioch had only preached to Jews, to Jewish-speaking people, until Antioch happened. And then the people in Antioch started doing something crazy. They started speaking about Jesus in a different language. That was how far they went. That was the extremes that they took it. But that small step, you know what it did? It launched something powerful. Powerful that's reached you and I. It, it ignited something that, that went beyond the, the, the borders, the, the barriers that had previously been set up for the church. These followers of Jesus from Cyprus and Cyrene stepped out, began to preach in Greek to Greek speakers, and lots of people came to know Jesus. That's really amazing. Let's keep going uh, and see what happens. Verse 22. When the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and he saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith. And many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch and both stayed there with the church for a full year teaching crowds of people. And it was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. During this time, some prophets traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them was named Agabus. And he stood up and he predicted by the Holy Spirit that a great famine was coming upon the entire Roman world. 
And this was fulfilled during the reign of Claudius. I love when they tell us that it actually happened. That, that helps. That's good. So the believers in Antioch decided to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea, everyone giving as much as they could. Then I want to pause and I want to jump to chapter 13 real fast, where we read about the leadership team of this church. Here's what it says. Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon called the black man, Lucius from Cyrene, Menaean, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas, and Saul. So the church in Antioch was the first church uh, that was where people were called Christians. And yes, at the beginning, it was a derogatory term. It was not a compliment. But you know what happened? These followers of Jesus heard that term and they were like, you're saying I look like Jesus? Thank you. And they owned it. And they were like, this is a great title. And from there, that term began to spread. So what were these Christians, these people who looked like Jesus defined by? Well, they preached the good news of Jesus to all people, like I said, not just Jews, but Gentiles, Greek speakers. They preached it to people who spoke Greek and weren't circumcised. And this was notable. It was the first time that it was happening. It changed things dramatically. The power of God was with them, we're told, which means that miracles were happening, that healings were happening, that the Holy Spirit was moving, that that people were being delivered. So when you think about what it means to look like Jesus, what we read from the Gospels, if you're sharing about the kingdom of God and you're reaching everybody you come into contact with, if you're seeing healings happen, uh, people being delivered from demons, you know what? That sounds and looks like Jesus. What else were they defined by, though? They were extremely generous. They saw a need and they took care of it. Uh, It says that they gave to the extent that they could. They gave as much as they could. They didn't hold back. They didn't toss five in. They gave a hundred. They went above and beyond. And they were led by a very diverse group of people, Acts 13 tells us. Barnabas was a Jewish man from Cyprus, not from Israel, which is notable. Simeon was defined by the color of his skin. Lucius was defined by being an African immigrant. Uh, Menaean was defined by being a forced childhood friend of the man who would eventually behead John the Baptist. Just let that childhood story sink in. I'm sure that he had a lot of things uh, to share from that. A lot of examples of what it meant to, to change his life dramatically. And then there's Saul who's later known as Paul, who was first a a murderer of followers of Jesus, and he became the apostle to the Gentiles. This is the church that was first called Christian. This is what they were defined by. Let that reality sink in with us this morning. These are the things that looked like Jesus to their world, to a world that had seen Jesus, that knew what that meant personally. So let me tell you, as a pastor here, I want us as a church, I want us to be a church that looks like Jesus, that that does the things that Jesus was famous for doing, that loves people in the way that Jesus was famous for loving people. I want this to be what people say about us. So what does it look like for us to be a church that looks like Jesus? Well, we need to live out the calling that he's given us in order for us to do this. Today is an intro, so I'm not doing a deep dive into anything. I'm doing overviews. Uh, And then we're going to spend the next couple of months doing a deeper dive into these things. 
But to start off, I want to highlight these three things that I mentioned that Jesus is calling our church to be as we show the world who he is. We are intentionally multicultural. We were Holy Spirit centered and we are kingdom of God justice activated. So let's start off with intentionally multicultural. Scott McKnight is a theologian and he said that God has designed the church to be a fellowship of difference. Uh, E-N-T-S, not difference. A mixture of people from across the map and spectrum. Men and women, rich and poor, a mix of races and ethnicities. So friends, if this is true, then when we look at our church, the church should be uh, uh, different genders, different ages, different socioeconomic statuses and groups, uh, different racial and ethnic groups, um, different cultures, different marital statuses, amongst many other things. And the question this morning is, do we see that in our church? And the good news is that we do. And I'm excited about this because I think it's a growing edge in our church. I think it's always been a part of us, but I see it more and more and more as I look out at who's a part of our church uh, week in and week out. And we want more. We want to be intentional about this. We want to be asking ourselves, not just are we, in, are we multicultural, but are we valuing the differences between us? You know, when I was in my early 20s, I worked in a jewelry store. And at this jewelry store, I worked with a lot of interesting people. One of them was an assistant manager named Hanny, and he was from Egypt. And one day we were talking, and, and he said, Stephen, do you know where Egypt is on the map? And I just looked at him, and I was like, of course I know where Egypt is. Like, what kind of question is this? And he was like, no, just tell me. Tell me where it is. So I started thinking about it. I was like, okay, well, it's, uh, it's northeastern Africa. Um, it, it's close to the Mediterranean Sea, uh, to Saudi Arabia, to the north. To, below it is the Sudan. And he stopped me. And he was like, okay, 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 I got it. And he smiled. And he said, you know, you're the first person that I've ever worked with that has actually known the answer to that question. And I was in shock because I was like, really? We all went to school, like we all had geography, like, come on. So we went around, we spent the next 30 minutes asking people where Egypt was. And not a single one of them knew where it was. They had vague notions of it being in Asia, close to Israel, uh, no real idea of where it was located or even what continent that it was on. And honestly, they didn't care all that much, uh, which was probably part of the problem. You know, in our church, we have people from all over the world. We have people from South America, from uh, Africa, from Europe, and we have people from all over North America, including countries other than the U.S. And so when I talk to people like my friend Herman, and he tells me that he's from Togo, I immediately ask him, where is Togo? Because I want to know. I want to know about uh, where that's located in Africa and, and what it's like uh you know, what its connection is to Ghana, which it's right next to, and what his experience was leaving Togo and coming here, and what his life has looked like. I want to know about his differences, about his experiences, about what life looks like for him. Why? Because I value Herman. This is why we sing songs in other languages, which we're going to be doing more and more of. This is why we pray and we read the Bible in other languages, which we're going to be doing more of. This is why Sarah and I are being intentional about creating a multi-ethnic, multilingual, multicultural leadership team for this church. 
We don't want to have an ethnic mixture in our congregation, but have only one dominant culture from the stage. We don't want to be multi-ethnic, but monocultural. We're called to more. And I love what Rich Nathan, a vineyard pastor, says about this. The church today is called to be a pointer to the coming kingdom. Why do we pray for the sick? Why do we feed the hungry, comfort the grieving, reconcile broken marriages, deliver people from the power of the devil? It is because these are all pointers to the coming kingdom. The book of Revelation tells us that when the kingdom comes in its fullness, it is going to be thoroughly multi-ethnic, multilingual, and multicultural. These are all pointers to the kingdom. The kingdom of God is multicultural intentionally. So that is Jesus's plan. And it shows it that in the Bible over and over and over again. We want to live that out in our community. What else are we called to be? We're called to be intentionally multicultural. We're called to be Holy Spirit centered. We want the Holy Spirit to have room to move in every single space that we have. That means Sunday mornings, online and in person. That means youth group. That means kids zone. Uh, That means small groups. That means outreaches uh, that we're doing outside of our building. Uh, That means uh, when we're in our towns and in our schools. That means when we uh, have hangouts at our homes when we're just doing life with our family. We want space for the Holy Spirit in all of those places everywhere because we believe that the Holy Spirit moves and speaks and acts in personal and in powerful ways. So let me tell you a story. Uh, John Wimber was one of the founders of the Vineyard and he tells the story about planting a vineyard church in Anaheim, California. And he felt like the Holy Spirit asked him to preach from the book of Luke uh, for, for a while. And at the end of every sermon, to have a time for people to come forward and receive prayer for healing. And so he did it. And for 10 months, almost no one was healed. And there was one Sunday where he was praying for people and he prayed for this one guy for 10 or for about two hours. And at the end of it, nothing happened. And he was so frustrated and he threw a little bit of a little kid hissy fit. And he was like pounding his chest, throwing his arms in the air, yelling. He was mad. He was upset. Why wasn't God doing anything? Then he went home. And the next morning, he got a phone call from somebody new to the church. And this person said, you know, my wife's sick and I just got a new job. I can't, I don't have any sick time. If I don't show up, uh, I'm going to lose my job, but we don't have anybody to watch kids. And so he's driving over to their house to pray for them. And as he's driving, he's saying, God, why did you do this? See, this guy actually believes that something's going to happen. And so he gets there and he prays for this guy, his wife. He walks in, prays for her. He kind of puts out his hand. He closes his eyes and and mumbles some like half-hearted prayer. And then he turns around at the end without even looking at her and looks at her husband and prepares himself to say why God didn't do anything. And the husband's smiling and he turns around and the wife had gotten out of bed, was walking over. She said she felt great. She asked him if he wanted any coffee or breakfast before he headed out that morning. And he shook his head. He was like, no, 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 I'm good. Thank you. Said goodbye to him, head out. And as he was walking to his car, he threw his fist in the air and said, we got one. We got one. Why do I tell this story? Well, there's two reasons. First, the Holy Spirit is real and he cares 
deeply. He heals people. He speaks to people. He delivers people from, uh, from all types of oppression. He moves in powerful ways. And the second thing is because we need to be faithful in creating space for the Holy Spirit to move regularly. He prayed for 10 months and not much happened. And then it did. And once it opened, it started happening all the time. We may not see things happen every time, but we will see things happen. And the more space that we create, the more things we're going to see the Holy Spirit do. But let me clarify, we want the supernatural to happen. We really do. We want God to move in these powerful ways. But actively creating space for the Holy Spirit is not just about the supernatural. There's the fruit of the Spirit as much as there's the gifts of the Spirit. We want our whole life to be filled with the Holy Spirit, with things like the fruit, like love, joy, peace, patience, self-control. We want those things to be as evident in our lives, to be uh, filling us just as much as we do the gifts of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, things like healing and, and, and deliverance and, and prophecy and words of knowledge. We want both. If we live lives that are filled with the Spirit, friends, I can guarantee that we are going to live lives that are filled with the power, with the gifts of the Spirit as well. So what are we called to be? We are called to be intentionally multicultural, to be Holy Spirit-centered, and we're called to be kingdom of God justice activated. We believe that Jesus brought the kingdom of God into our world through his life, death, and resurrection. And when he resurrected and he came back, he went to his father, but when he left, he didn't leave. His kingdom is still continuing to rule and reign in our world. It's still continuing to break in and bring more and more of his presence and his authority into our world through the Holy Spirit, through the church and what he's called us to do. And we believe that this affects every area of our life. It means that sicknesses are healed, the demons are banished, that sins are forgiven, and that people encounter the love of God. So when I say kingdom of God justice, I'm not talking about a criminal justice system or social justice necessarily. I'm talking about justice in the light of the kingdom of God. God's plan for justice. So what is God's plan for justice? Well, here's four things that we can be confident enough. God loves justice and he hates injustice. God has compassion for all those who suffer injustice. God condemns and judges those who carry out acts of injustice. And God actively works to rescue the victims of injustice. You can take those to the bank. That's what the word says that he believes that he does. So what is kingdom of God justice? It's so many things, but here's a few. It's serving the poor. It's, it's looking for freedom for those who are oppressed in our communities. It's working for racial and ethnic equality. It's being a safe place for women who are contemplating abortion to be able to come and to know that they're going to be cared for, that they're going to be loved, and that there is another option. Uh, it, it's caring for the widows and orphans in our communities, which I think in our day and time often means the elderly and, and kids in the foster care system. It's serving the immigrants. It's actively engaging when we see injustice happening in our communities. And it's dealing with injustice in a way that brings lasting change, not just temporary good feelings. We're in the life change business as followers of Jesus. That is what we are about. And Jesus changes situations that are filled with injustice. And we're actively learning how to do this in our context. And one of the things that, that we're doing that we've mentioned that I'm, I'm, I'm happy about because it's, it's, it's sustainable, it's carrying on, 
It's the mobile food pantry. You know, in the past year, we've given out at least 600 meals on a biweekly basis to families in our communities who need extra. 600 meals. And due to the generosity of our church, we have enough money to be able to do this week in and week out for the next year without any issues. That's sustainable. That's life change. That's creating a better system. But we're still learning and we're still dreaming. Acts 11.20 says, Some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began to preach to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. And the power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. Friends, we are a called people. We are urged by Jesus to live our lives in a direction that he is pointing us in. And two things always remain central. Number one, that we are a people who are called by Jesus. We, we share to share the good news of Jesus with all people and in all situations. Number two, we are led by the one who called us, by the one who's transformed us, Jesus. So what are we called to be? We're Jesus followers who, are, uh, who experience the Holy Spirit, who, creating, who are creating a, a multicultural community, who are pursuing kingdom of God, justice. And I'm excited for what Jesus has for us. It's going to be really good. And we know that in order to live out the calling that Jesus has for us, we have to know what that calling is. And over the past few weeks, I just want to say that I've looked at our church online and in person, and I've just said, thank you, Jesus. I love this church. There is so much good going on with us. We've grown in incredible ways this past year. We love each other. We love Jesus. We are giving sacrificially to help those in need. We pray with power and with expectation. We're growing more and more ethnically and racially diverse. And we're, we're social, social, uh, socioeconomically diverse. And we have leaders who, who are all over the place who are single, who are married, who have kids, who don't have kids. This is a great church. And I believe as we step out even further into the calling that Jesus has for us, it's only going to get better. Things are only going to continue to grow and deepen and to become more. We're a church that looks like Jesus, a a church that does the things that Jesus did, and a church that loves people in the way that Jesus was so famous for loving them. And friends, I'm grateful that you're a part of this church. And I want to invite you to become even deeper in uh, what it is that we're doing. Jump in all the way. Follow Jesus all the way. Do the things that he's asking us to do. There's good stuff going on. He's leading us, and I'm grateful for it. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for our church. I thank you for what you're doing for the growth that we're seeing, for the power that we're seeing, for the, uh, the, the things that we value, for the hearts that we have, for the ways that we love our community, that we love each other. I'm so grateful. And I pray right now for each and every one of us who are a part of this, that you will come into our homes and speak to us right now. Give us confidence and courage to see your movement, to, to be aware of your love. Uh, to be excited by what it is that you're up to. Give us passion to follow you wholeheartedly. We are your church, Jesus. We love you. And we say thank you. 
in Jesus' name.